Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we are going to be talking Turkey. The Turkish president has recently made a speech where he spoke about the EU in quite fruity terms. Hey EU, wake up! If you keep trying to define our operation as occupation, our job is an easy one. We'd open the gates and send you 3.6 million refugees. I am joined by an all-star cast to help us make sense of the story behind the Erdogan quote, which is unfolding live as we speak. Down the line from Brussels, I have Asla Aydin Tashbash, who is a senior policy fellow at ECFR and based in Turkey most of the time. Also sitting with her in Brussels is Jeremy Shapiro, the research director at ECFR. And down the line from some undisclosed location, we have Julian Barnes-Dacey, who is the head of ECFR's Middle East and North Africa program. So why don't we start in Turkey, Asla? Why don't you tell us about the background to what's going on in Syria, how we got to where we are at the moment, and, and what lies behind Turkish president's angry speech So, Mark, we are now in this interesting space in which every single crisis that involved Turkey, the migration issue, S-400 drama, Syria, the Kurdish issue, uh, is now combined in a Twitter storm, either by Trump and and threats uh, from Erdogan that you have just mentioned. The truth is, Turkey and United States have been in talks for some time. Uh, the two bureaucracies, I should say, uh, to establish a safe zone that is coming at Turkey's request. As you know, U.S. support for the Syrian Kurdish forces, SDF, Syrian Defense Forces, in in the north of the country has long been a point of contention. But there have been, over the past couple of months, very serious efforts and uh, a process to establish a security mechanism. Turkey wants Kurdish forces away from its border and wants actually to to establish a a sort of a safe zone pretty much along the entire border, but in the initial phase, something like 180 kilometer. What happened was, even though uh, progress has been made, their joint patrols and YPG fortifications, trenches have have been closed and the Kurds were pushed back and, you know, joint air, air patrols, Turkey had started flying UAV. What happened is I think Erdogan, President Erdogan started getting frustrated with the pace of things. He said, our patience is out and he picked up the phone and called Donald Trump. This line is very separate. Erdogan-Trump line has been very separate from the state-to-state in institutional relationship, and it's almost always worked. President Trump uh, sort of wanting to make, you know, to do business with Erdogan, to make it work with the Turkish president. And that actually set set out a chain of events over the past couple of days that no one expected. No one expected it to go this fast. Uh, Basically, Trump giving a green light to Turkish incursion. Following that, I think uh, sort of a good deal of panic on the ground, both with the populations, but in terms of the U.S., you know, military pullout from the intended area, which is a short section, a small section, but a very critical part of the U.S. presence in Syria. And of course, a huge reaction from U.S. Congress. Lindsey Graham, one of a staunch uh, Trump supporter, a Republican senator, uh, 
preparing a bipartisan bill with Senator Van Hollen to sanction Turkey. So for the first time, I think we've had all of these issues and uh, the Trump-Erdogan relationship very much under scrutiny, not not just in Europe, but in Washington. Uh, uh, And I think that uh, it's basically an unprecedented pace in terms of how fast things are moving and combining the uh, entire refugee issue and problems in the Turkish-American relationship with the ISIS matter as well, given that there is a significant population of ISIS prisoners in this area. I think that uh, this is the third Turkish incursion into Syria. It's initially intended for 180 kilometers on Turkey's borders, but it's the first leg of a larger Turkish plan to establish, not only establish a safe zone, but essentially, according to President Erdogan, establish a a number of cities and towns in that area and move in the refugee population from Idlib and from Turkey, the Syrian Arabs, into this area. Let me stop here for now, because you might have questions. So I want to go to to Washington uh, as well and ask Jeremy about what's going on there. But maybe before we do that, we should t- uh, linger a bit on, on what's actually happening in, in Syria. Julian, you've been following the uh, war in Syria for a long time. This is quite a new development, this operation which the Turks have, have launched called Source of Peace, where they're trying to liberate, allegedly liberate local communities from, from terrorists. But many people are worried about an ethnic cleansing of, of the Kurds. And Asla talked about the fears of, of lots of uh, ISIS prisoners escaping. But tell us about how you see things from the ground in Syria. Thanks, Mark. Well, I mean, look, firstly, just to say, I, I, I don't think from, from any perspective is this seen in Turkey as a, as a liberation of, of people. This is very much seen as a uh, national security-led operation to remove Kurds who are linked to the PKK, a terrorist-linked organization, from Turkey's immediate border. Secondly, yes, this is, is a, a new event, but it's probably one of the least unexpected or least surprising developments in, in, in the long story of the Syria conflict. President Erdogan has repeatedly been saying for quite some time now, we will invade. Yes, there have been negotiations going on between the bureaucracies of the US and Turkey, but Erdogan has remained committed to this line that we are going in. And on the other side, President Trump has repeatedly made clear, I want out of Syria. This is not a US burden and others need to pick up the load. So finally, those two factors came together. The Turks have moved into northern Syria to try and squash the Kurds. It does create significant new complications in the conflict. Obviously, big questions being asked about the long ongoing U.S. presence. And I think, to my mind, this is certainly the beginning of the end of, of a wider presence in Syria and leaves it much more in the hands of, of the Turks, uh, the Russians, who are obviously close to both Ankara and Damascus, uh, and localized players on the ground, such as the Kurds themselves and the Iranians. And I think the question now is whether we are going to see a big eruption of conflict or whether the likes of the Russians will try and negotiate some kind of deal, either between Damascus and Ankara to squeeze the Kurds together, or between Damascus and the Kurds uh, to try and push back in, against the Turks in a way that allows Damascus to reassert its sovereignty over uh, the Northeast. I think what's common across all of these factors is, of course, the utter 
degree of European irrelevance. And I think, you know, the contempt uh, which President Erdogan, Erdogan uh, showed towards the, the Europeans in that tweet that you started with is very much reflective of, of the European position in the Northeast. They're nowhere to be seen. If the Americans withdraw, they will withdraw. They haven't taken responsibility over recent months for foreign ISIS detainees in camps who may now be liberated by the conflict and fighting. Uh, so the Europeans find themselves in a very bad situation in which the direct spillover could affect them as, as much as others, um, and yet with really no cards to play. So I want to come to Europe as well, and I think it is very interesting to to look at what levers Europeans might have and how Europe is going to be affected by this. But the driving force for, for what's happened is, is the American president, Donald Trump, he has talked about withdrawing from Syria before. In fact, this was one of the things that provoked Jim Mattis, the former Secretary of Defence, to, to resign um, uh, a year ago. But at that time, the deep state, I suppose, as, as uh, Trump might call it, fought back and stopped the US from withdrawing uh, fully. What is different this time, Jeremy? Uh not that much is different. I think that this is a sort of object lesson in the limits of the deep state, in, at least in America's, the limits of the deep state's ability to prevent the president from having foreign policy that he wanted, that he wants. Essentially, he said to his bureaucracy nearly a year ago, I want to get out of Syria and, uh, you know, give me some ways of doing that. I think he, he you know, he, he's not that direct or that clear, but I think essentially the message that the bureaucracy should have received is you better give a responsible way for President Trump to get out or he will find an irresponsible way. They did not give him a responsible way. They tried to essentially undo his decision and he doesn't care about any of that stuff. So the next time Erdogan called and said, I'm going to invade, Trump said, yeah, go right ahead. Probably hadn't really engaged with the issue in several months. He was always for it. He was always for leaving this problem to Turkey. And so the, the president, having given the go-ahead to this Turkish invasion, incursion, whatever we're supposed to be calling it, meant that it was impossible for the U.S. forces on the ground to oppose it. And so I think that this gives you some sense of a point that I think should be quite obvious, but I just is, we're having trouble carrying over in the Trump administration, which is that President of the United States gets to have the foreign policy he wants, for better or for worse, usually for worse with this president. And I think that that also applies to what's going on in the Congress today. Now the deep state has lost the struggle over Syria with the president, and uh, so Congress is going to take it up. I think Congress has uh, some other tools that the deep state doesn't, but I don't think that the legislative branch can make foreign policy either. And while they can definitely make an impact on the president. I think ultimately the the idea that they're going to force this president or any president to have a presence in Syria against his will by using sanctions or other such blunt tools, I think makes no sense. And what about this other tweet that we saw from Donald Trump where he said that if Turkey went in and... and, and... Yeah, he said he would obliterate the Turkish economy if uh, if they were not humane. I think that that is an effort to uh, to play these domestic politics to try to get the Congress off his back to as much as po- as much as possible. But clearly, he's not going to do anything, uh, regardless of how the Turkish operation plays out. I mean, he hasn't done that in Saudi Arabia, and I think 
he's counting on, I don't know if he's doing this consciously, or he's counting on the fact that the, the congressional attention will wander, that Congress is not an individual. Congress does not have a memory. Congress does not have um, much of an attention span. And it's quite busy impeaching him. So I think that uh, they will lose attention on, the, on this problem, and this is a way of him forestalling them from taking precipitate action. I think that the one possibility that might change that is if this Turkey issue becomes wrapped up in the domestic political scandal around impeachment. And that means that if it's revealed in a way that I think I have no information about but wouldn't, wouldn't really surprise anybody, that in fact... Trump is doing this for some sort of, uh, he's appeasing Erdogan for some sort of domestic, political, or financial gain of his own, uh, and that becomes revealed, then I think the, that gets wrapped up in the impeachment inquiry, and that becomes a very different game within Washington. One of the surprising things about this whole thing is, he, is that he doesn't seem to have asked President Erdogan for any help with Joe Biden. We don't know that. Uh, we we haven't seen the transcript of the call, as they say. Uh, I think that there's, there is a possibility that he has asked for some domestic political favors. Again, I have no information about that, but uh, it would be quite consistent with his behavior over time. So, uh, so I want to come back to you about the Turkish response, but maybe before that, just, Julian, can you reflect a bit on what this means for America in the Middle East? Is this the beginning of of a truly post-American Middle East that we're seeing if, if the U.S. pulls out? Gee, I mean, people have been saying that for so long now, and yet they keep hanging around. So uh, I'm, I'm not really sure that one should look at that in, in, these, big, in these big terms. I mean, Trump has made clear that uh, he wanted the U.S. out of Syria, that that's followed a policy that, that Obama himself pretty much embraced. The U.S. is very present elsewhere in the region. You know, there is a question, does Trump want to pivot away from the region and does he move away from this single-minded focus on, on countering Iran that has so dominated uh, the last couple of years and focused on Asia and other issues? And I think part of that will depend on, on who comes in to replace Pompeo if he leaves, who, who, the, the new system in the NSC following Bolton's departure. I mean, these are all people who are very anti-Iran and driven by that. Can Trump move away from that? I don't know. But I think this should be seen through a more narrow, immediate lens of what's going on in Syria. In Syria, it will have broader ramifications. A lot of the people in the region are growing increasingly worried about the fact that Trump isn't living up to his commitments and promises, namely the Arab Gulf states and Israel. And so, so they are taking matters into their own hands increasingly. But, but really, I mean, I defer to Jeremy on the bigger question about whether this is something dramatic or just a continued trend, the continued evolution of the same trend where the U.S has been losing its unilateral power to dictate events and allowing other players either competitively or cooperatively uh, to shape developments on the ground. So, Asa, maybe you can come back to, to where we started, which is this, the, the, the European-Turkish kind of angle. Why was Erdogan making this threat to Europeans? How does Europe fit into this picture? Does this mean that we're going to see 3.6 million refugees showing up in Europe? Mark, it probably means that uh, Europe will have to sort of revisit the financial arrangement, the migration deal with Turkey and consider upping the the ante here in terms of how much uh, uh, fam, the funds given to Turkey. Look, Erdogan says he has a grand vision and uh, wants to establish these ta- 10 towns with a population of 
30,000 to 140 villages, etc., with mosques and schools. And, and recently, as you know, there's been an uptick in migration. And when European officials uh, rushed to Ankara, including Commissioner Avramopoulos, uh, in term, to find out what is happening, well, one of the things they heard was the safe zone plans and that, you know, that it would cost Turkey 25 billion euros, something in the vicinity of that, and that it's very important Europe chip in for that. Now, there's no political appetite for that in Europe at the moment, particularly, you know, the incursion is extremely unpopular. President Erdogan is, extre- Erdogan is extremely unpopular and all of that. But obviously, migration and flow of refugees is a top issue for European uh, member states and society. So I think that, you know, 3 billion, that initial round of 3 billion euros were paid to Turkey to keep the uh, refugees, three and a half million refugees. Another round of 3 billion, I think, is being contracted out now. But I think we're going to see more of that. Uh, But one thing that did happen in this sort of last couple of days, which I think is going to have a lasting impact, is the tone Trump has been using vis-a-vis Europe. This is seemingly uh, a sort of a a crisis that doesn't involve Europe, but almost every tweet, almost every uh, sort of statement from Trump involved uh, a stab at Europeans, a comment that Europeans are not taking ISIS, they are to blame, let them deal with it, etc. We're no longer going to be suckers. But I think Erdogan is adapting that tone now. He's seen that this is the way to talk to Europe. They take it and uh, they hold their head in shame. And I think we're going to see more of that language if you if you if 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 you try to sort of um, condemn or or move move at the United Nations Security Council in a in a way that condemns. Turkey's incursion, you know, we will use the refugee issue. I think he's openly saying this. So more funds, but also he wants the, he does not want to see political pressure from Europe uh, when it comes to the sort of move into Syria. And what do you think, any of you, what do you think Europeans should do, could do? There are, you know, probably a few British special forces on the ground and a few French troops, but you know, as you said at the beginning, we're sort of bit players compared to Russia and the US and, uh, and Iran on the ground. What kinds of measures do you think Europeans should adopt? I, there seems to be a bit of a manic maneuvering by all sides on the ground at the moment. Russians have just, Lavrov just announced that he's, Russia is talking to Kurds and the Syrian regime to try to bring the Syrian regime back. And meanwhile, Turkey, while the area that's being targeted at the moment by aerial bombardment is, is fairly big, I, I think the intention is, is to pick a small pocket uh, which of predominantly Arab towns. So I think Europeans at this point have to wait a little bit for the dust to settle, because we're really in the heat of things. There is a tendency from the parliament, and of course we've seen statements from Mogherini yesterday, so this is not a popular move in the European public opinion or in the political spectrum, but I do think that we need to wait for the dust to settle before charting out a course. If for all we know, it, it it's possible that Kurds would welcome Syrian government forces into some of this area over the next couple of weeks or months. And then that's an entirely different <laughs> equation in that situation. Europeans will just have to wait, I think. I think there's a few things they can do right now, if I can just come in. I mean, I think, yes, Afla, but I mean, 
one of the main European concerns right now is the prospect that, that fighting leads to the escape of ISIS prisoners held by the SDF, and they could reconstitute themselves and, and, and launch attacks either in the region or in Europe. You know, first and foremost, Europeans can take back those foreign detainees who are European. You know, this is something that the Europeans have shedded all responsibility for in quite an appalling way. There are a bunch of European foreign fighters out there. If Europeans don't want these fighters to fall into, into the void and, and reconstitute themselves, they could bring them home. Secondly, I think, I mean, Esla, I think, talked a bit about this, but there is a, a need to put some pressure on Turkey in terms of how they conduct this operation. And you know, there have been firm statements already come out condemning it and calling on Turkey to hold back. And that is something that, that you need to keep doing despite uh, Erdogan's tweets. And I guess part of that, you know, reflects obviously Europe's weakness on the refugee file. And until Europe is prepared to, to own that in a meaningful way, it will continue to be vulnerable. But I don't think it should, should stop it from, from continuing to try and press Turkey on this. And thirdly, just alluding to, to Asla's last point there in terms of the Kurds, I think it's been clear for a long time now that ultimately the best solution or the, the, the most viable solution for the Northeast was some kind of accommodation between the Kurds and Damascus in which you use the leverage accrued to the international presence in the Northeast to try and extract better conditions for the Kurds, some kind of autonomy under a central remit, so to speak. Obviously, the Kurdish position now is incredibly weakened. They should have probably made that call a while back when they had some leverage. Now that everyone is abandoning them, of course, it's very hard for them to go to Damascus and say, give us something. But there may still be some space to do something along those lines. And although, obviously, you know, there's a poison of Assad, trying to work a deal that creates some space for the Kurds, which seems to be in line with what the Russians are pushing, and will, be, will necessitate Assad bending against his will, but could be possible, maybe the best way of trying to protect, protect Kurdish partners who have, who have lost up to, I think, 10,000 fighters fighting ISIS on our behalf, and also potentially to lay out a track that Turkey can ultimately, li ultimately live by if it comes with guarantees from, from Damascus or the Russians to hold the, Turks, the Kurds back and to regulate that border between Syria and Turkey. Okay. Jeremy, why don't I give you the last word? What do you think um, uh, is going to happen as this fight hots up in Washington? You said that the deep state and Congress can't force Donald Trump to keep troops in Syria, but they can do quite a lot to, to shape the relationship between the White House and Turkey in the same way that they have between the White House and, and the Kremlin over the last few years. Will Turkey be the new Russia? For the for Congress, uh, no, I don't think that the Congress will have a similar ability to um, to shape that. I think that the reason that the Congress was able to do that shaping with Russia to the extent that it was was because of the Trump Russia domestic scandal, which really did make the president feel weak in, on that issue. And I think you've seen since that scandal sort of ended in in the, the roughly in July, the president actually really coming into his own on Russia. So I think, again, on, on Turkey, the, the, the Congress won't be able to shape it absent some domestic political scandal that embraces his, his Turkish foreign policy. So I definitely think that Julian is right, that this is more of a sort of yet another cut in the U.S. presence in the Middle East rather than any sort of 
definitive end to it because there's because it's a multi-faceted presence and there's a lot of elements that are still there. I think though that Trump is determined to reduce it and he, you know, he 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 will manage more in the in the next year, he will manage a lot more in a second term if he gets one. I do think also that this is probably a pretty definitive end of the chapter of the at least the US presence in in uh, eastern Syria. I don't, I don't see that they're really going to be able to stay any longer. You know, the pullout has already begun. Um, I think the, the relationship with the Kurds has been definitively destroyed. You know, if you, once you say that you've been stabbed in the back, it's hard to renew the partnership. And so I think that there, there, there is a bit of a closed parenthesis uh, there, although I, I would certainly accept that that's only part of the U.S. presence in, in the region. Okay, well, we'll see how this very frightening situation develops, and I'm sure we'll come back to it um, again many times. But for now, I think that's the end of, of this discussion. We have one thing left to do on this podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. Asla, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? Well, I went back to a book that I had read uh, over the summer but had not finished, The Fall of the Ottomans by Eugene Rogan. It's the final stretch of the Ottoman Empire, the First World War. But what is interesting, of course, is reading about the different fronts and uh, the diplomacy that goes on in uh, in Europe. But I think one of the things we have not really looked into is always been the impact, the, the, the presence of the Ottoman Empire from lands far and afar, far away, and, um, and what's going on in the fronts and with uh, particularly sort of an alternative narratives, uh, historic narratives. And I think this is an excellent synthesis. I went back to it because I wanted to read about Russia and Turkey, Russia and the Ottoman Empire. And it's full of interesting details. And one's mind, of course, you know, reading about the Ottoman Empire, particularly the final uh, decades of the empire, one's mind always travels in time and wonders if, you know, there are parallels with today. Okay. What about you, Julian? So I... um... I needed a break from all of this, and I decided I'd pick up some fiction, but for some silly, foolish reason, it kind of, it's a book about kind of life under Stalin. I'm not sure that was where I was intending to go, but I, I, I've, been, I've been meaning to read my namesake, or semi-namesake, Julian Barnes, for a long time. I've never read him. So I finally picked up The Noise of Time um, to, 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 to both read some, some, some fiction and, and, and to, to discover Julian Barnes, who, who's obviously similar to me in name. And this is the story of, I think it's modeled on Dmitry uh, Shostakovich, the, the Russian composer, and, and how he fell out of the, the graces of Stalin and how he tried to survive that. Let me get back to you on, 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 on how I find that in our next edition. Okay, what about you, Jeremy? Yeah, I just read uh, also a novel. I think I'm slightly better at relaxing than Julian, but uh, the, no- the novel that I read was um, called Chimera by uh, um, Alexandros Yanis, who is a, um, a European External Action Service diplomat who took uh, a few months off to write a novel. And it's a really quite fascinating novel about a sort of 
sort of imaginable future in which there is a sort of global war between cosmopolitanism and nationalism. And it's about the the struggle of uh, this cosmopolitan couple to come to terms with whether they need to embrace violence in this fat in this fight and essentially become what they are trying to oppose and so it gets to the heart of i think the struggle that diplomats and and people who view themselves as citizens of the world are increasingly having in a nationalist age which is they've been preaching a doctrine of sort of universal peace and harmony and it's being undermined from within by nationalist forces that they no longer have the tools to fight Wow, that sounds, uh, that sounds great. In fact, I think you're the second person to, re- to um, recommend it on The World in 30 Minutes. So, Oh, really? Oh. Well, yeah, you know, actually that's true because I think I got the recommendation from The World in 30 Minutes, come to think of it. Because I'm an avid listener. I've been uh, pondering something much more parochial, which was this fascinating extended text message which Dominic Cummings... Uh, allegedly, Dominic Cummings sent to the Spectator explaining the uh, the Brexit uh, shenanigans which are going on at the moment, which provides quite. Your, an... your reading is a text message. That that memo from Number Ten source, which went to the Spectator about the the latest Brexit things, but I think it actually arrived as a text message. Yes. Wow. Anyway, it's very long. You'll see that uh, whoever it was is very loquacious <laughs> in their text messages and very coherent and gives you quite an interesting insight into the uh, kind of weirdly solipsistic but uh, internally coherent uh, strategies which are being forged in, in number 10 Downing Street at the moment. Even if it looks to me like uh, quite a lot of it is about trying to to uh, communicate with the Irish and to shift their positions. So there are lots of, uh, of warnings within it. But anyway, it's a, it's a fascinating uh, document which we will include on the page where we're going to have all of these recommendations, which is www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. If you've enjoyed listening to us, then please let other people know about it by giving us a brilliant review and a rating on whatever platform you're using to listen to this podcast on and by tweeting about it or writing about it on Facebook or whatever social media platforms you use. But for now, from Asla Aydin Tashbash, Julian Barnes-Dacey, Jeremy Shapiro and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The editor of ECFR's podcast is Marlene Riedel. Our researcher is Jonathan Hakenbrosch. And the producer of this episode is Alice Whelan.